They have experienced trauma because they've lost so many people to to this pandemic. It is a pandemic and it's an emergency. Sego Skenegol. Welcome to season six of Sacred Teachings. As the whole world continues to battle the COVID pandemic, our people are facing a very different crisis, the high rate of suicide in many of our communities. For us, this is a whole other pandemic and the loss of so many lives is tragic and heartbreaking. In this episode, guest host Peter Downey travels north to discuss suicide among our Inuit brothers and sisters. Please be aware that what is discussed in this episode may be upsetting or triggering to some of our listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling, please contact the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 833-456-4566 or send a text to 45645. Help is available. Choose to stay or to help someone stay. Thanks, Ginny. You know, it's been said that as we get older, each loss becomes every loss. In other words, as we age, it's the cumulative loss that can be difficult to bear. The tragedy of Indigenous suicides offers, as you might imagine, more hard questions than easy answers. But as we begin, this much is crystal clear. In far too many Indigenous communities, one doesn't have to age to experience that burden of cumulative loss. Young people live not only with the pain of losing loved ones and friends, but also with the anxiety and the emotional stress of the reality that suicide is an option that many choose. And as you can imagine, for parents, it is an ever-present challenge. The number of parents in this country. This is University of Saskatchewan adjunct professor Jack Hicks. Who kind of panic if their kids aren't home by by when they're supposed to be because they, they don't know what's not and not just they don't know what's going on in the usual sense. You know, they don't know if their child is alive or not. One mother who knows this pressure is Hilu Taguna. She is a career counselor in Baker Lake. Every single person that I know has been deeply affected. We all have a family member or at least a close friend that has committed suicide or attempted suicide. We don't want it to impact us this way, but it does. Will there be anybody around to help them? Because having somebody around with the training can literally be a life or death difference maker, right? We're going to hear more from Jack and Hilu in just a second. For now, though, I want to say that we're going to be looking forward this season, constantly mindful of the sacred teachings. We're going to examine the approaches that have made a positive difference in people's lives, the role of mentors and the hope that they provide, the wise guidance and the warm comfort that proper grief can supply, as well as 
Well, inevitably, we have to explore the, the numerous and the stubborn contributing factors to the rates of suicide, from addictions to living in remote locations to that terrible pervasive feeling of being lost and unknown in the universe. Now, it's easy to drown in the statistics and the interpretations of those statistics when it comes to suicide, not just in Canada, but with Indigenous communities around the world. So we'd like to start with as much of an overview as is possible. To make it manageable, we're going to start by mainly looking at the situation in the jurisdiction of Nunavut. Jack Hicks is a leading researcher and a scholar on the incidence of suicide across this huge territory. My, my basic hypothesis is that the big difference between suicide rates by Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people is Indigenous people have everything going on that non-Indigenous people have, plus historical trauma. The specific nature and the intensity of historical trauma varies. It's not an even thing across the country, right? So in addition to historical historic trauma, intergenerational stuff from, you know, the nature of colonial dispossession, the kind of land people were given to live on, etc., is one thing, but you can also have a community that had a pedophile priest or teacher. So there's, there's more recent forms of trauma. And, and this all hit me really when I was um, starting my work in Nunavut, when I realized that the, the difference in rate between the highest rate community and the lowest rate community was 6.8 times. If the general rate between Inuit and Nunavut and, and Southern Canada is roughly 10 times, um, that means that the rate within Nunavut is two-thirds of that of the difference that everybody talks about, but nobody talks about the difference within Nunavut. And it turns out there's a very clear geographic pattern to that. It's the Baffin Island and close to Baffin Island communities that are high, and the mainland and, and the, the Katikmut region, so the Kivalik and the Katikmut, while they're elevated compared to Canada, they're not nearly as elevated as Baffin Island. So there's actually patterns that we can map out statistically and then try and explain, you know, what, what would be the underlying factors. So what we see in Nunavut now is actually, while the rate is falling slightly, the rate is actually falling, I wouldn't say significantly, but more markedly among young people and not among middle-aged people. My hypothesis is there was a cohort of young people in Nunavut who had a really elevated rate of adverse childhood experiences. You know, what they suffered as children and youth, both in families, realizing that there's lots of happy families in Nunavut, right? Like not every Inuit kid is at risk for suicidal behavior, except in the sense that losing a friend to suicide, especially when you're young, is, is a huge risk factor. So, you know, we've documented stories of perfectly happy young people who died by suicide where the the trigger appears to have been the death of a, of a kid their age, which is not an Inuit thing. It's, it's, it's a global thing, except Inuit children in Nunavut experience the loss at a higher rate. But what we see, I think, is a cohort of youth, say 20 years, had elevated rates, sharply elevated rates of suicidal behavior as children and youth. And as that cohort is aging through, they're carrying their burden with them. And a lot of that cohort is now in middle age. So you're seeing a, a rise in suicide among middle-aged people. Not huge, but it's not going down. And so we, have, we can see the patterns within the society. So you've got the regional thing, but you've also got the age thing. 
Just as a, a bit of background, in terms of treatment, something called the ASSIST program has proven to be effective. It's an acronym for Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. Its origins go back almost 40 years when a multidisciplinary team of social workers, psychiatrists, and education counselors developed the approach that today is generally taught in two-day workshops. If you've taken a two-day workshop and you've done, you, you, under, you have a, a basic understanding of the fact that anybody can be at risk of suicidal behavior under the, the wrong circumstances, um, so it's not something that happens only to indigenous people or gay people or, or drug users or people with depression or, and the idea that there can be tipping, you know, proximal events that can push people over the edge. The basic idea that you have to connect with somebody and be clear that we're talking suicide here. Um, listen to what we call the person's reasons for living and the person's reasons for dying because we want to know reasons for dying we want to know exactly what's going on in their life not just the stuff that they've already verbalized but cumulative risk is often huge right so if your relationship is looks like it might bust up and you're pretty sure you're going to lose your job and um you've lost a friend to suicide that can just be more stress than you can handle you might be able to deal with any one of those but the three of them together roughly at the same time is too much those basic concepts and how you have to find out what's keeping the person alive. Is it a relationship, a child, a dog, a career goal, a trip they want to take? And, you know, that the positives can be drowned in the pain and you kind of want to pump up the positives. And once you think you understand the person's reasons for dying and reasons for living, then you can work with them to come up with a safety plan in which you don't have to fix their life. If we can keep somebody who's in suicidal crisis alive overnight or for a weekend and get them to whatever help they need, which may not be professional help, but often is, you can save. That's how you actually save a life. In any field of public health, if the authorities don't do what they really ought to do, like what we know the situation requires, the people who suffer the most for that are the people at greatest risk for that specific thing, whether it's whooping cough or whatever. The Canadian state has known for decades, quite clearly, that there are groups of Indigenous peoples with elevated rates of suicide. For Inuit, that's been known for 40 years. And the track record in actually doing something substantial about it is atrocious. It, to me, it's, it's a form of systemic racism. So what do we understand about isolation and, and, and remote living as contributing factors? In small communities, as isolated as those are Nunavut, as those in Nunavut are, with the long in in some areas like Baffin Island, the long history of elevated rates, where every death picks off the emotional scabs from previous suicides, people are are numbed. I don't like the term normalization. I have never met a family who said, and then we said, well, you know, it's been going around a lot. Oh well, no, it's a, it's a trauma and a tragedy for each family. For me, what's been normalized are the, the background risk factors. I, I don't know why it's hard for some people to wrap their head around the fact that colonization can have a mental health impact. Then overcrowded housing. Then in some areas, high rates, uh, you know, there could be past sexual predators. Um, 
In Nunavut, adults are child charged with sexual offenses against children at 10 times the national rate. That's not an abstract statistic. That's a lived reality. A lot of uh, ang angry kids, you know, between living conditions and poverty and everything else, you know, guess what? That results in elevated rates of bullying. And bullying can, you know, can cause young people to flip out. In terms of trying to, to reduce the risk of suicide, what is at the top of your list? A, a key one is strengthening the mental health system. And that's something that only government can do. But there's also, you know, uh, school psychologists, of which there are none. Better counseling for children and, and families. Nunavut, it's now 2021, uh, doesn't have a drug and alcohol treatment center. Quite often people are right to say, my life is shit. I was abused by my stepfather. My parents blessed them have huge issues. There's often no food in the house. You know, we're packed like sardines in here. You know, several of my friends are struggling. That's real life. So it's not just a sense that nobody cares in an emotional level, but nobody cares about the quality of my life. I cannot tell you how many young people I've trained and assist who have called or written and said, you won't believe what happened to me last night. To which I respond, Oh, yeah, I would. Tell me about it. I had one guy say I was coming home from the New Year's dance, two o'clock in the morning, and I came around the corner, and there was my best friend, who I hadn't seen much of in recent years because I was away at college, standing on top of the fuel tank outside of his house with a, a rope around his neck. And he said, I didn't panic. I knew what to do. It took me 90 minutes of conversation to get him to take the noose off and come down from the fuel tank but I did it. It's, uh, it's mind-blowing to me the degree to which mainstream Canadian society has looked the other way and sometimes engaged in, perhaps not consciously, but engaged in perspectives that are kind of racist. The Canadian government for decades has done a great job of largely looking the other way to the point of ignoring a unanimous vote in the House of Commons just two years ago. It's astonishing. It's so frustrating that this is, that this is ignored. I mean, I just, I can't sort I've, of... I've, I've had some very dark days in my life, Peter. Some very dark days. Canada is, generally speaking, a backwards country when it comes to suicide prevention, not just for Indigenous people, for everybody. For example, the World Health Organization has recommended for many years that every country have a national strategy for suicide prevention. Canada is one of the few developed countries not to have a national strategy. I mean, it is complicated, but I don't think the solution, the, the, the basics, the basic concept is that um, complicated. But the, the starting point is to acknowledge that all the things that have been shown to work in Nigeria and Nepal and New Zealand are relevant in Nunavut as well. Jack Hicks is an adjunct professor in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan. Now let's go to Baker Lake. It's pretty much at the geographical center of Canada. It sits about 320 kilometers inland from Hudson's Bay. And it's home to career counselor and mother of two, Hilu Taguna. We began by talking about just the presence of suicide in her life and in her community. So 
for example, myself, I lost a cousin when I was 11 to suicide. That was my first uh, experience with it. The family tries to protect you from it. Your mom tries to tell you, you know, tell you very little about what happened, but you live in a small community. You will, you will know you are, you are not going to be protected from that reality, even as a child. And that continues throughout your entire life. Your classmate commit suicide right after graduating from grade 12. And then an uncle afterwards, friends. I had my children quite young. My, um, you think as a young parent that, okay, I'm gonna raise my children so they're not impacted the way many other people have been impacted. I'm going to be the stopper of intergenerational trauma. I'm going to make sure they have a safe home and that um, they're surrounded by healthy and safe people. But the reality is they get out there and they make friends and um, you know, they're, they have their own relationships and they have their own lives. And over time, they love and know people who are traumatized and they have trauma themselves, right? So my children have lost I can't, I think I'm beginning to lose count of how many people that are very close to them that they love dearly. And I'm having to, so my children are experiencing trauma, even though I protected them as well as I can. And what do you do? You can't escape. You don't want to move away to some place that's foreign to them where they have no friends or family just because you don't want them to experience this. This is, this is our home. This is where their grandparents are this is where all their cousins are this is where their culture is this is where they'll know what it is to be inuk and be raised around their language their culture their customs and you can't escape the reality of what this is you know as you're speaking of i it just it occurred to me that it's i like we've all heard african-american parents in the united states talk about that difficult discussion they have to have with uh, with their children about the police and about what might happen mm -hmm. to them it almost sounds like you're saying you mm -hmm. have to have that kind of a conversation with with young people about about the existence of this terrible legacy and tragedy i'm going to get a little bit emotional here because i have cuz i've had to figure it out myself and I had, my daughter especially has lost so many, many dear friends. And um, I had to have a conversation with her about it. And I was like, okay, we have to reframe this in a sense. We have to reframe it and see it almost as how we see medical conditions. You know, when, for example, somebody has cancer and passes away. And that was, you know, what happened with my husband. And how we did everything we could. We did all the interventions we could. We helped as much as we possibly could. People intervened, people helped. But there came a time when the suicide occurred and we did not do as much as we can. And that's how I had to try to help her because she, um, 
she impacts a lot of lives. It's her personality. She's very social. She loves people that are, you know, maybe not their life reality is not exactly ideal. And mm. so she's more impacted than, than many. And so that's how I've had to work with her on it is, okay, let's see this as a medical medical condition. I think I understand exactly what you're saying. And it, it must be, and I understand your emotion because it, you must feel helpless is too strong a word, but you must sort of feel like, do I have the skill? Do I have the, the wherewithal? Do I have the skill to, to deal with something like this with a young person? So the reality, like even when I told her that, am I telling the truth in that? Are we doing all we can? It's not her job, but us as, us as a society, us as a government, are we doing all we can? Do we have early interventions in place that could have prevented a lot of the trauma that occurred? Do we have programming in place to help people that are seeking assistance? Are we supporting the cultural component, the societal values that we held before that kept us in a better position than we are now? Are we supporting those changes that people are trying to make in terms of, okay, let's get back to where we're at in terms of language, in terms of, in terms of culture. So um, before, um, I guess, colonization occurred, we had a system that worked. There were leaders in our, in our families, in our clans, Roles were played, people had roles to play, everybody had a job in a sense. Children were learning from their, their parents, from their cousins, from their families. Uh, grandparents were very much involved in the raising. Language was strong, culture was strong. People learned by doing. It was very, a very strong culture and that was in essence lost when when we all started to go away for residential school like i'm the last one it's as early as now like i was one of the very last people who attended residential school and so when when we were you know gone away from our families we lost a big period of time Luckily for me, it was only two years. But imagine, like, for my mother's generation, they were gone for many, many years from their, from their families. So a lot was lost during that time. And now we're in communities that maybe can't support what needs to be done. Um, homes, there aren't very good options for acquiring housing. So people are living in maybe not inadequate housing. Um, they're overcrowded, there's poverty. So that's not a place where you can heal. If you're just trying to survive your basic instincts, you're not in a place where you can heal from. You're not in a place where you can parent properly and make proper decisions, right? These are some of the things that if there are no mental health facilities where somebody can go, if they need to get away from a situation, um, that's in the plants now, which is which we can be thankful about. We don't need to go um, down to another province or away from our culture and language and families to access proper mental health facilities. Um, another thing is um, if somebody wants to go away for uh, alcohol, you know, rehabilitation, they're having to 
wait for months and access something out of province or territory. This is changing now. So there is hope in that. Our governments and Inuit organizations are working together to try to create um, systems that can support this. Uh, I think another big area that can be worked on is early intervention. Um, having programming in place for parents and families to work together, supporting people from supporting families from infancy onward and not having it just like get to that stage where someone's in a mental health crisis and all that 20 to 25 years of uh, opportunities lost upon that person, upon that individual and their supporting family, making sure that we have. Uh, intervention opportunities at every stage of their life to support them that's that is my dream for for even my own children because now they have experienced trauma because they've lost so many people to to this pandemic it is a pandemic and it's an emergency that's that's what it is what do you think has to be done to begin to address what you're saying is needed I, I will never pretend to have all the answers. In my own world, what I have done to try to help this is I try to participate in homegrown groups that are helping youth. And so that's like an athletic association that I participate in. That's one thing. So homegrown opportunities where community members are trying to make a difference, make it easier for them to make that difference. Sometimes it's as easy as facility. Some people don't even have access to a facility to hosting. So making sure that there are wellness uh, organizations with a facility in place so that Inuit can provide programming. Another thing I do is provide a safe home. So right now I have a family member, an extended family member who's staying with me because she has nowhere to go and she's a child and all the organizations in place are not assisting her at this time. So she's in my house. So creating safe homes perhaps where a child or a young person can say, I'm not in a good place. My family's not, you know, my home is not a safe home right now. I just need a place to go. I've seen that happen I've seen that type of organization in other Nunavik community, Inuit communities, and it seems to work really well. It could be as simple as that. In that crisis moment, do they have a place to go? Most often not. It could be, like I said, early intervention programming. It could be just um, cooking programs, uh, drop-in programs for families to go with their children so that when a mother is feeling frustrated and tired and overwhelmed and they don't have a safe place to be, they have a place to go with their children. And it might be as easy as a drop-in program. I've taken a program, it's called ASSIST, and they've nunavutized it for the North. So I asked to become a trainer and I'm a trainer in that. And it's um, intervention is what it is. It's training the common person, you or I, to be able to intervene uh, when you are concerned about someone, because that conversation is very hard to have for many. And so this, this workshop allows for a person to get trained and practice asking those very yeah. tough questions, you know? So that's something that's important to me as well, is just 
giving people the tools to be able to ask those questions so that you can intervene in that moment, in that crisis moment. Another big one, I think, is crime prevention. That's something that we could work better towards. If there's children at risk, then that's, you're already seeing high-risk behaviors. And so seeing those high-risk behaviors, can we not, you know, work on things right away? I feel like everybody wants to contribute to their community. So I remember when there was one youth in a position to do crime prevention, I, I told her, go get water for elders with these youth. And they thrived. In, it's an activity, but they thrived. But then again, not all, all people who we are going to lose to suicide are engaging in those behaviors too. Sometimes it's the unsaid and the unknown. Yeah. I, I recently read that if Nunavut were its own country, we would have the highest rate of suicide in the world. And that's very sad to, to know, especially in communities where everybody knows everybody. Where did we lose those opportunities? To, to save that person? Why did we lose that person? What more could we have done to prevent this? Um, what more can we do to prevent the next one? We just lost somebody a few days ago in our community. Again, another loss. Um, a father to two sons. How can we stop this? Now these two children are going to be raised without, without an, a parent, right? So it's quite tragic. And you're always thinking about what more you can do and what more, what other ways we can um, try, try to prevent this. It's something that's always on your mind. You don't escape it. And even if these youths were not traumatized by what, start, what started it all, we need to start to heal from it. Addressing our, our mental health and getting to a place where reconnecting with our family by language, by cultural activities, by traditional activities, seeking out what you need in order to, to get there spiritually, seeking help when you need to seek help. These are all very important things that we need to make sure that everyone has the tools to do, um, to acknowledge that, okay, I'm in a place right now where I need help. I'm going to go and seek it, making sure that um, each person can do that and has access to those resources and knows where to, to get that. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I really appreciate what you're saying about the need to reconnect to, the, to your history and to mm -hmm. family and to, and to, I mean, in a sense, just believe that you belong, that, that you are someone who deserves to, to belong. Mm -hmm. Yes, that trauma, that intergenerational trauma, understanding why your parents um, did things the way they did and how you didn't like it and how are you going to stop it at your, at your level, you know? Why um, they couldn't provide the emotional support that, you know, that you needed. Why is that the case? How am I going to make it different for my next generation? How am I going to heal from that and accept that it was not provided to me, but I'm going to make the change at my level? 
um, having those difficult conversations and seeing like, it's um, good to see that the conversations are now happening after say like the TRC reports and um, MMIW, these conversations are occurring across the nation and they need to happen. And that is a part of, and having those um, lessons in school, acknowledging that these are things that happened to my family and maybe that allows a person to say, they cannot provide me those supports because they did not learn it themselves. And I'm going to get myself to a place where I'm going to heal from the trauma that they, they endured and which is in essence being passed on to me. Nobody wants to pass trauma on to their children. Nobody wants to pass trauma on to their community. But this is, this is what's happening right now. And I feel like we're at the height of it, but that we are in a position now to not be at the height of this, you know, uh, very present, very real uh, reality of suicide and other things that come with it, say abuses or addictions that occur. These are all interconnected um, crime that occurs. It's all interconnected with this very real end of suicide. It ends for that individual, perhaps. The pain ends. Do we know that? We don't know that, but it doesn't end for the rest of us too that remain, uh, the rest of us that suffer as a result of it. All the, the children that you know are traumatized by the reality of suicide. We we want to fix this, and we want to get to a healing place, most definitely. Do you understand how you've survived what you've been through? I think I'm healing all the time from everything that I've seen and experienced. I think it's um, seeing hope in our children is the only way that um, gets me through every single day, wanting a better future for them and knowing where we come from and the resilience that we carry as Inuit, the elements that we've survived got us to where we are right now and um having been raised by my grandmother as well seeing her strength being in her presence have um learning from her knowledge i want to be a carrier of that uh strength and resilience i want to be that for the people who i connect with every day i want to help put a smile on someone's face today. If that helps them through this day, then that's what I want to be. For the child that's staying in my house right now because there's no other system in place for them to be home right now, I want to be that safe place. I can't thank you enough. And, I, and your strength is inspiring. So thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity too, because I think, um, getting the information out there. There's always people that are willing to, you know, make a difference too. And I feel like informing others and saying that there's hope. There's hope in, in our communities. It's not all sadness. The community atmosphere is very strong. There's always helpers, you know. We, we're going to overcome this. I feel it. So I appreciate this opportunity too to speak. And I thank you for that.
Hilu Taguna is a career counselor in Baker Lake, Nunavut. I suspect you've heard the cliché that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. After this episode, I think it's clear that this is a view from the privileged. There's nothing temporary about the toxicity of colonialism or the enduring painful legacy of residential schools. Also clear, I think, is the recognition that, of course, statistics provide critical insights into the dimensions of the problem, but equally compelling are the achingly human stories behind those numbers. I'm Peter Downey. Thanks for listening. Now, Hilu, Jack, and Peter for helping to create an awareness of the suicide pandemic. We have noticed a spike in suicide during the COVID-19 pandemic. So many of our people have been in despair and the pandemic has deepened this despair. It is sad to say a heartbreaking, perfect storm. In 2018, a movie called Grizzlies premiered based on a true story. It piqued my interest because it is about lacrosse, an ancient sport of my people and it was played in Nunavut. I remember thinking, this is crazy, lacrosse in Nunavut? It was difficult to watch through moist eyes as it showed all of the trauma that young people experience in remote villages. A teacher starts a lacrosse program. To make a long story short, it changed the hearts and minds of the young people and the community. The team scored only one goal in the national tournament, but that one goal was hope. The hope Hilu talked about. The movie also showed the importance of living with the land. Our traditional values are a huge part of the Grizzlies. Respect for self, each other, and the land. Honesty, recognizing what life is like for you and for others. Truth, telling others what life is like for you. Humility, recognizing the importance of others and how you are important, but no more important than others. Wisdom, looking for the knowledge of the elders and mentors and recognizing the wisdom of young people. Bravery, no fear of going out on the land to hunt, to speak what's in your heart, and to go outside of your comfort zone. And last but not least, there is love. Love surrounds us. We have to look for it. Our ancestors loved us without knowing us. We must love ourselves, each other, and those to come. It has been said that the more you love, the more you can know. And the more you know, the more you can pass on. And you don't really know anything until you pass it on. Now, uh, Ona, 